Welcome to the Race Through Space Read Along Podcast, written and hosted by David Hawk. Welcome back to the Race Through Space Read Along Podcast. I am your host, David Hawk, author of the Race Through Space, which is now available on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and available as an audiobook on Audible. Last week, I told you about how the Race Through Space story took hold and evolved over the better part of a decade. But then, that's all I had was the idea. I had never written a book before. I had written several short stories since I was in college, all with the intentions of turning them into a book, but each project would fizzle out shortly thereafter. Now, I was faced with the very real possibility that this idea that I had been mulling over for over 10 years would fall onto a scrap heap of dead stories in my mind. But I didn't know how to even begin. I had stopped and started my story maybe a half dozen times. I never got past more than the page. Just as I resigned myself to the fact that this story would never be told, I stumbled across something that completely changed the trajectory of Race Through Space and of my life. At the same time that I was coming up with the story for the Race Through Space, I also had a day job that was a long commute away from my house. I was content with listening to music and sports radio, Go Denver Broncos! but I longed for something different. One of my favorite directors at the time was an independent film director named Kevin Smith. If you're under 16 and listening to this podcast, his movies are probably a little too grown up for you. Smith also made a career of doing especially long Q&A presentations all over the world, and I also heard that he was hosting these things called podcasts. Podcasts were still a pretty new medium at the time, but now everybody has a podcast. You know, I host several myself. Wanting to listen to something different on my commute, I began to listen to the vast library of Kevin Smith podcasts. There was one particular show called Smodcast that changed everything. It was a recorded Q&A show from somewhere up in Canada. I don't even remember what question was asked. But in very typical Kevin Smith fashion, his answer meandered into a discussion about why he went about making his first movie Clerks by himself. There was something he said that resonated with me. He said that if he didn't make his movie then nobody else would. And if you have an idea in your head, you can't wait for somebody else to bring your stories to life, you need to take matters into your own hands. I've since gone back to try and find that episode, and I haven't been able to. But he was right. I couldn't wait for somebody else to tell my stories. I needed to be the one to do it. Now, I was motivated, but I still had no idea how to write a book. That's when another bit of inspiration dropped in front of me. The first season of Stranger Things dropped onto Netflix. It was the final piece of the puzzle. The show was set in the 80s, and it was a sci-fi adventure. For weeks after I binged the show, I dreamt about how Race to Space could become the next Stranger Things, or even the next Goonies. First things first, I had to write the story. This time, I was going to write it as a screenplay instead. So I downloaded screenwriting software for novices, and I began to write and write and write. I let my imagination loose. I had no outline, and I just wrote the first thing that popped into my head. What that did was reignite my passion for writing that I had lost so many years ago. Suddenly, I was creating rich characters and an entire universe around them. The story took shape. In just under two months, I had completed the very raw first drafts of my Race Through Space screenplay. But finishing the first draft was just the beginning. Next week, I'll discuss how I was able to perfect the screenplay and take it to Hollywood with hopes of making it big. And also discuss how an encounter with Kevin Smith changed the entire trajectory of the story. On this week's read-along podcast, we will be reading chapters 5-7. through 7. 
We left off last week with Neil Marie receiving the emergency message from Neil's father, and they made their way to the mountain lab. There, they found out what Neil's father had been working on for the last several years. Neil and Marie eventually make their way back to Neil's house, and that's where they find the wormhole device. I'm particularly fond of these next few chapters as we are introduced to the world Simia, Yima, and we travel to the city alone. So, let's begin. For those of you that want to follow along, I am reading Chapter 5 of the Race to Space Trilogy, which starts on page 27. Neil and Marie let go of each other's hands and looked around at their ailing surroundings. Dim sunlight came from the west and an alien star was sitting behind black granite mountains. Dominating the eastern sky was Simia's mother planet, Halion. The planet was a massive brown globe. There were no oceans or any signs of vegetation. Neil looked around to the south where he saw dark stone clouds building in the distance. Looking north, Neil saw an endless expanse of rainforest. He bent down and put his hand to the ground. I think this is a leaf, he said. The forest canopy was intertwined, making paths from treetop to treetop. There were breaks in the canopy that descended into the darkness. It was extremely hot and muggy. Sweat ran down Neil's face, and he used the bottom of his shirt to wipe it away. Marie took off her hoodie and tied it around her waist. Neil walked to Marie, unzipped his backpack, and pulled out a bottle of water. He took a big chug of water and handed the bottle to Marie, who took an equally long drink. She handed the bottle back to Neil... And as he zipped up the pack, he heard a rustling sound coming from behind them. Neil whipped his head toward the direction of the sound. His senses were on overdrive, and he strained to see or hear anything. Suddenly, a shadow blanketed them. A black, cat-like mass landed just twenty feet ahead of them. The creature was long and sleek, and it had two large eyes that spanned its round head. Each eye was blood red and had glowing yellow corneas. Its nose was pressed up into its face, and it had two long ears standing erect on the top of its head. Its mouth had two rows of six-inch-long white fangs that dripped some sort of viscous fluid. The creature had six legs with hand-like appendages at its base. As the black creature stalked toward them, a ray of fading sun glistened in its fur. The way the light hit the animal made its fur wave between black and green, virtually camouflaging the beast against the surrounding jungle. It moved like a stalking tiger. Neil and Marie grabbed each other, a journey over before it even began. From behind them came a sharp whistling sound. They both turned their heads to see where the whistling came from. Standing behind them was Yima. He had long, muscular arms with long fingers, and he stood on stocky legs. He had a furry body, similar to that of a Neanderthal on Earth. Yima's fur was deep green, and he had four eyes, two of them purple, and the other two were gold. He had a silver Fu Manchu mustache that sat below a small, pug-like nose, and he had a large mouth with thick, square teeth. Neil looked back at the cat-like creature, just in time to see it leap right at them. He and Marie screamed in terror as the creature sailed over their heads and stopped just in front of Yima. The creature flopped onto its stomach and then rolled onto its back. Yima reached down and rubbed the animal's chest while he talked to it soothingly. A voice came through the wormhole device on Neil's left arm. It was Ralph. You will find one pair of translators in the front pocket of Stephen's pack. I would advise you to put them on, he said. As long as you have the translators in your ears, I can translate any language in real time. Neil dropped the backpack onto the leafy surface. He opened up the front pocket. Inside were a pair of white Bluetooth earbuds. Neil strapped one into his left ear and gave the other one to Marie. Yima stood up and walked toward them. He stopped a few feet in front of them, his tail waving lazily behind him. Stephen said one Earth child will come. I see two Earthlings, Yima said. Yep, I'm Neil, and this is my friend Marie. 
My father sent us here through a wormhole because he needs our help, Neil answered. You know my dad? Yima gave a toothy grin. Stephen is a friend to Yiba and to the Waichu, he said. Marie pointed to the cat-like creature that was now on its back, juggling a seed pod like it was an otter juggling a rock. That is my friend Sof. You will never find a more loyal companion. He is not scary, Yima said. He is quite scary, thank you very much, Marie said. Yima motioned for them to join him next to Sof. Neil reluctantly went up to the creature and it flipped over its long tail in the air. He hesitantly bent over the creature and stroked its head. Neil saw Soft's fur take on a pink hue, resembling his own skin color. Then the creature made a high-pitched whistling sound and its tail began to sway. Marie walked up to Soft and petted its back. We must go to Alon and speak to the council. It is getting dark and this is not a place for you to be when the sun goes down, Yuma said. The sounds of the moon world came to life. There was a howling in the distance and a hissing sound coming from behind them. A chirping sound came from the south and the buzz of thousands of creatures big and small, came from all around them. Yim started walking with Sof down the palm trail. Neil and Marie looked at each other and took off running to catch up with him. Yima led them along a path over the jungle canopy. After walking for what seemed like an hour, they came upon an ancient tree rising several feet higher than the rest of the surrounding jungle. The trunk was dark brown and it had small reflective leaf-like appendages that faced toward the setting sun. Yima headed directly to the tree. Neil pointed to a hole cut into it, and in an instant, every preconceived notion he had about the world was completely upended. When the group got 20 feet from the hole in the tree, an array of artificial lights flashed on. They were installed throughout the canopy, illuminating the path. Marie clapped her hand to her mouth, and Neil felt his mouth drop. Neil looked back at them and grinned. Your father wore the same expression the first time I brought him here, he said. When they arrived at a black door, a blue laser just like the one back in his father's office, scanned Yima up and down. The door hit opened with a hiss. The open doorway revealed four black walls lit by a soft white light. Yima stepped inside first, and then Marie and Neil followed him. They turned around, and Sof looked at them from outside the doorway. Yima pointed to the right, and Sof ran away. He bounded up one of the trees nearby and laid down. Yima pressed a screen, the door closed, and the transport descended. The three of them descended in silence until the transport bounced to a stop. The door opened and a shimmering silver city lay spread out before them. Welcome to the Waichu capital, alone, Yima said. The city was built into the trees. Its silver buildings reflected the thousands of lights that illuminated the city. It extended endlessly in every direction and for hundreds of feet below. Thick, fat branches were used as bridges that connected the buildings and to the platform they stood on. The platform itself was semicircular and the surface was made of glinting silver. There were blue lights illuminating the platform and there were scores of Waichu citizens busily going about their day. Neil walked ahead of the group and to the center of the platform. He looked up and turned around in a circle. Images of the buildings built into the trees overwhelmed him. There were metallic buildings going in every direction and they were different shapes and sizes. Most were rectangular but some were large silver spears. Hundreds of Waichu walked along the endless amount of bridges connecting the city. The Waichu females had light hair, little more than that of a furry human, and their own distinctive color pattern. Most combinations of silver, green, and black. Their limbs were long and lean, and they wore thin ponchos belted at the waist. The ponchos shifted from green to black as the fabric swayed. The men wore short pants that were made of the same material as the women's ponchos. 
The males were slightly bent and much hairier. Their silky fur was a single dark color, either green or black. Several of the males had grown facial hair and had long, flowing locks atop their heads, bound with leather straps. All of the Waichu had four eyes and flicking tails. Neil noticed an interesting feature almost immediately. All of them had different combinations of black, purple, and green eyes. Yima was the only one with golden eyes. Yima spoke to Neil and Marie. My people have lived amongst the trees for thousands of years. Neil was dumbstruck by the sight of the shimmering city. He had assumed that Waichu were primitives. He certainly didn't expect to see the advanced civilization that lay before him. Yima led Neil and Marie to the opening of a rectangular building. It was at least 200 feet long with a single entrance and several round windows. Neil smelled roasting meat wafting through the building's open doorway and his stomach rumbled. Yima took them inside. There were a dozen Waichu citizens eating and conversing. When they walked through the opening, all conversation stopped and all eyes appeared to be trained on Neil and Marie as they walked in. Attention, honored guests, I present Neil and Marie of the planet Earth, Yima said, addressing the crowd. Neil is the son of Stephen. The patrons erupted in loud hoots and hollers. Neil saw a black-haired male with a toothy smile to his left. He bowed at the waist before introducing himself as Olu, the leader of the Waichu's resources. The rest of the Waichu patrons lined up and introduced themselves. The last one was a young Waichu female. Her shimmering fur was light gold and barely visible. She had a stout tail and four purple eyes. I am Maya of Alone. I welcome you to my city, she said, also bowing to the two friends. Maya is called the heart of the Waichu. She represents the Waichu citizens, and it's her job to advance their species, Ralph said to Neil and Marie through their earpieces. Both of them bowed back to Maya. I'm sure you have a lot of questions, as do we, Maya said. Most importantly, why are you here? My dad's in trouble. He sent me a message saying that he needs help. He told me to find Yima and to play a video he loaded on the device for you, Neil said as he pointed to the black device on his arm. Come with me, Maya said. Maya led Neil and Marie along with Yima and Olu to an empty room in the back of the building. Neil's stomach grumbled loudly, which was made worse when he inhaled the smell of roasting meat. Maya took them to a round wooden table. Neil and Marie flopped down into the nearest seats, but all the Waichu remained standing. The two friends looked at each other, and they saw Yima motioning for them to rise. Maya walked to the other side of the table and took her seat, which evidently signaled the rest of the Waichu to be seated. Yima sat to the left of Maya, and Olu was to her right. The remaining patrons took their seats. Two Waichu servers brought plates of roasted meats and fruit the size of basketballs. One of the servers placed a sizzling plate in front of Marie. She sneered and nonchalantly pushed the plate away and reached for a piece of fruit. It looked like a kiwi, except it was larger and it was bright red. Once Neil saw the Waichu start to eat, he cut into his chunk of roasted meat and grinned. He leaned over to Marie. You know what's weird? he asked. Marie looked Neil right in the eye. What's weird, dude? she said sarcastically. Is that we started the day riding bikes to watch a planetarium show. Then we rode all the way to your grandpa's super secret lab. And when we got there, your dad's Star Trek computer told us that he made a machine that opens up wormholes. And now your dad is stuck somewhere in the universe and he sent us on a rescue mission. That led us to the biggest jungle I've ever seen. We almost got eaten by a six-legged cat... thing... And then we were greeted by a guy with four eyes and a tail who took us to a city in the trees. Trees, Neil. A city in the trees. But that isn't weird enough. He took us to their leader and now you're eating outer space mystery meat. 
Yeah, that too, Neil said, chewing loudly. But I was just thinking that this thing tastes nothing like chicken. Marie rolled her eyes. Maya wiped her face with a silky napkin and she stood up. I think it is time for you to play your father's video, she said. Neil tapped on the screen to his device and brought it to life. On the menu was a file named Videos. The first heading said Y2 Council. He also noted videos titled Mission Overview, Tryan, Amphibios, Silosis Resistance, Glacis High Priestess, and High Council of Verlam. Below were dozens of how-to videos, everything from how to conduct basic repairs on the device to Priper, Waichu, Tryon, Ison, Solosin, and Verlam etiquette. Neil pressed the screen and a video began to play. The words, Press for Projection, lit up. He pressed the screen and the device shot the image of the video onto the ceiling. He adjusted the picture until it played on a nearby wall. The projection was of his dad, sitting at his desk, talking to the camera. Neil noticed how his eyes seemed to look at him directly. My emotion toward two caretakers at the open end of the building. They reached up towards the ceiling and pulled down two doors. Then, they extended the doors the entire length of the room, closing it off to the rest of the patrons in the building. Neil pressed the screen and played the video. I want to thank the White Shoe Grand Council for listening to what I have to say. An old friend of mine and I are traveling to meet with a civilization named the Tiva. They are the beings who created the wormhole that I have been using to visit you and several other worlds throughout the universe. They've discovered that a powerful quasar will destroy their solar system in less than a year, said Neil's father. Marie leaned over to Neil and whispered in his ear, Why don't they just use their wormholes to escape the planet? You may be wondering why the Tiva don't use the wormholes to evacuate, his father continued. The Tiva Council have elected to stay on their planet and use their final days, spreading their millions of years of accumulated knowledge throughout the universe. We were on our way to receive that information and release it to our own world. Unfortunately, we've been stranded with no way of escape. I have asked my son to help rescue us or to retrieve the information from the Tiva. Yiba, you are my most trusted friend. I'm asking that you travel and protect my son as he makes this journey. We don't have much time. Maya, I beg of you, please allow Yima to guide and protect my son. Neil's father paused, took a drink of water, and continued. Neil, I know what I'm asking you is a lot, and I'm sorry, but the journey is just too important, said his father. Make no mistake, there will be some danger, but I hope I've paved the safest possible path for you to follow. I thank you all, and I hope to see you again soon. Neil turned off the video, and the screen went black. Maya leaned over toward Yima, and then to Olu. I must ask to you to leave the room while the council discusses the content of your father's request, she said. Neil pushed his chair back and stood up. Marie took another bite of her fruit and stood up as well. She wiped her face with her shirt sleeve, and they walked out of the room and into the city. It was the first time they had been alone since they left his dad's lab. We can't do this. I mean, we're nerds, and we're only 13, Marie said as though suddenly realizing the enormity of the task before them. Marie, I think we have to do this. My father and Dr. Lowell are in serious danger. And what about going to that one place, Feralam? Neil asked. Retrieving their information will completely change the course of human history. Don't you want to be a part of that? Olu walked out of the doorway to the building and motioned for them to return. They walked back into the room and took their seats. Their plates had been taken away and replaced with glass cups filled with a thick green liquid that Neil wasn't brave enough to drink. He noticed that Marie didn't either. The rest of the council took their seats. Everyone had their eyes focused on Maya. Neil, you have been given a tremendous responsibility, and what your father is asking for is an enormous request. After deliberating, 
We cannot allow Yima to guide you on your journey, Maya said. Of all the scenarios that ran through Neil's mind, his father's request being rejected was not one of them. Yima represents the protection forces for the Waichu, and allowing him to leave would put us in danger. Likewise, Olu is unable to go. He represents our resources. Sending him would put our energy and food production at risk. I represent the people. I make decisions for the Waichu that will enhance our species now and for future generations, Maya said. I will make a compromise. Although I cannot send Yima or Alu on their journey, I will guide you myself. This journey will come at a cost. Before I can join you on your quest, I must immediately travel to this Tryon city of Galleon. Seeing the look of incomprehension on Neil's face, Yima explained the situation to him. We have also made a terrible discovery. Our world is in grave danger. A rogue star has passed near our star system and has severely altered our orbit. We have been sent on a collision course with Halion. Both worlds will be destroyed, Yima said. Nothing will survive. All is not lost, Olu added. Your father has given us the instructions to build large wormhole machines. We have located a habitable planet that we can evacuate to, but we need to quickly build and power these massive machines. We simply lack the resources to do it ourselves. We cannot save everyone, but we can save thousands, Maya said. Before I can guide you on your journey, we must first descend to the Tryon capital located on the Simian surface and meet with their leader, Nyla, to inform him of our discovery. Can we come with you? Neil asked. That way we can leave as soon as you've met with... What's his name? Nyla? Maya contemplated this for a moment before answering, That is not a bad suggestion. I could use the company. Out of curiosity, what kind of danger will we be in? Marie asked. We're not very good around danger. There are creatures that live in the darkness called the Daro, Yima said almost immediately. These vicious beasts dominate this world. The Daro have just one weakness, Olu said, interrupting Yima. They are highly sensitive to our star's light. When our ancestors discovered that weakness, the greatest minds in the world developed immense arrays of starlights to protect us. The only reason we've been able to evolve and flourish is because we always have the lights on. What happens if the lights go out? asked Marie. If the power dies and we are surrounded by darkness, the Dara will overwhelm all the cities around the world. That's why it is essential that we evacuate as many citizens as possible before the lights go out or our world begins to break apart, Yuma said. So again, what kind of danger will we be in? Marie asked impatiently. The tracks are well lit and they are protected but there is some danger if the lights become damaged. Rest assured, the risk is very small, Maya said. Okay, Marie said hesitantly. I want you to stay in my beautiful city as our honored guests, Maya said. Yima will take you to your quarters. We have a big day ahead of us. Neil and Marie stood up and walked with Yima out the door of the building and down two bridges to a small square building made of silver. Yima pointed towards the open door. Neil and Marie entered while Yima stayed outside. I will retrieve you when it's time to leave on your journey, Yima said. I assure you that you will be most comfortable. On your beds are clean clothing and new pairs of translators. Another thing your father taught us how to build. Sleep well, earthlings. Neil waved goodbye as Yima turned and walked away. A silver door slid from the opening and sealed them inside the room. A shade unfurled to cover the window. The room was stark white. The beds were square and covered with thin white sheets. Bundles of black clothing laid at the ends of the beds and the translators sat in boxes on their pillows. There was nothing else in the room except for their packs that had been delivered to their room. Chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters. 
not only because we get to meet Yima and Maya and the rest of the council, but this is the first opportunity we get to experience the Waichu city of Alone. As I've stated before, I like to name my cities and aliens after actual people here on Earth who have made a huge contribution to science. In this instance, Alone is actually named after Elon Musk. Simi itself is Latin for ape. Since the Waichu are ape-like, I thought it would be appropriate name. It is a moon of a large rocky planet called Halion. And Simia is one giant rainforest. Because there is less gravity and has an oxygen rich atmosphere, plants and creatures grow larger than they would here on Earth. Soffit was created as I wrote the screenplay. This is my nod to the animal companions in Disney films. And this is the first time where we get to meet Yima. Because Simia is a large rainforest, it just made sense to make the creatures that live at the top of the jungle canopy to be evolved apes. The creatures at the top evolved to have four eyes. This would be an evolutionary advantage so the creatures can have a wider view. In the screenplay version of the Race to Space, the wormhole machines actually required vast amounts of silver, and silver is plentiful on the moon world. The element of silver is only created through supernova explosions. As I associate silver with advancement, I wanted my readers to think that the Waichu were primitive species until they got to Alone. There they realized that the Waichu are actually quite intelligent and advanced. Alone is one of many Waichu cities that are spread throughout Simia. Yima and Meyer are the only two species or planets not named after scientists. Olu is actually named after astrophysicist Hakim Aluisier. The Waichu are similar to modern Africans today, so when I hear them speak, in my mind they actually have an African accent. We also introduced the Daro in this chapter. They are an evolutionary split from the Triant species, which we will soon meet. They were banished to the dark interiors of the rainforest and evolved to live in the dark. The starlights were created thousands of years ago to protect the simian cities against the Daro. And my last fun fact for chapter 5, in the original screenplay of the Race to Space, I actually explained how creatures use the trees when they need to use the bathrooms. Unfortunately for space reasons, I had to cut that scene out, but maybe some I'll add back in for later editions. And now, chapter 6. Once again, if you're following along, I am on chapter 40 of the Race Through Space trilogy. Marie ran and jumped onto the bed to the right and sunk in. Their bed technology is light years ahead of ours, she said. Neil smiled and jumped onto his own bed, knocking the bundle of clothes to the floor. He soon fell asleep. After several hours, the sound of drums filled the inside of the room. Marie woke up, stretched her arms, and looked over at Neil, who was laying horizontally across his bed. She slipped out of her bed and tiptoed over to him. She tapped his shoulder, and when he didn't wake up, she shook him awake. What? he asked sleepily. Yo, it's drumming in here. There was a knock at the door. They whipped their heads toward it. Yima had arrived to escort them to the transport where they were to meet with Maya. He told them, You must dress and come with me. We must depart immediately, he said, turning and walking away. Neil Marie looked at each other and shrugged in unison. Neil reached down and grabbed the clothing that had fallen to the floor. The material was soft and cool to the touch, but didn't feel like any cloth that he had ever touched before. It felt like a fine metallic thread. He started to take off his dirty SpaceX shirt when his eyes caught Marie's as she was about to change. They both quickly turned around and threw on their new clothes as quickly as possible. Neil grabbed his device, slipped it on, and grabbed both packs. He handed one to Marie. The group led by Yima walked up a bridge and back to the same platform from where they had first arrived. Maya and Olu were there waiting for them. Maya wore a tight, long-sleeved shirt and tight black pants 
made of the same material as Neil's new outfit. When she moved, the fabric shifted from black into gold. Yima touched a screen at the transport. It scanned his face and then the door opened. Maya spoke with Yima and Olu and then she walked towards the transport. She entered the first transport. Neil and Marie followed closely behind. They turned around and a laser scanned Maya's face. The door closed and it began its descent. It will take several hours for us to reach Galleon. We will stop at the final platform to pick up the last member of our team. Then we will make our final descent to the Tryon capital, Maya said. That's crazy. How high up are we? Neil asked. We are many miles above the simian surface, Maya replied. The transport came to a halt at the final Waichu outpost. Soph sat in the front of the door. Marie and Neil took an instinctive step backward. Soph was flanked by two tall Waichu males. One was black with a long silver beard. The second Waichu male had green fur. Both had four eyes and flicking tails. Neither were armed. Soph sauntered into the transport and he sat next to Maya, bumping Neil and Marie all the way to the back. He looked back at them and huffed. The door closed and the transport came back to life. Soon the seeming jungle enveloped them. Neil looked up to see the tracks above him and then he looked below. Brilliant white lights illuminated the tracks through the oncoming darkness. He watched as Maya touched a blank space on the wall near the door and the lights dimmed. His eyes acclimated to the darkness and he looked out of the windows. Something in the jungle caught his eye. Neil thought he saw something moving just out of the reach of the lights. He couldn't make out any shapes in the darkness, but a sense of shiver down his spine. He tried to convince himself that it was only his imagination. At this depth, sunlight no longer penetrated the jungle interior. There was only darkness. The only light came from the array of starlights illuminating the trek. The transport descended for just over two hours when a red light appeared on the back wall near the door. A look of concern came across Maya's face. Just briefly, but Neil noticed it. What is it? he asked. It's nothing, I'm sure, Maya said. These transports are built to be extremely cautious, sometimes too cautious. She walked up to the panel and made a series of gestures on the wall. A map of the transport came to life, taking up the entire wall. Maya pressed the red dot and the map zoomed in. Neil noticed that there were white dots all along the map of the track, except where the red dot was. Marie lightly touched Maya's shoulder. What's going on? she asked. The lights are out two miles down the track. The transport will need to slow down considerably to make sure the track is not compromised, Maya said. It means we have to watch for the Darrow. This transport is built to protect us from an attack, but the track may be damaged. The transport continued down the track and toward the looming darkness below. Everyone was fixed on the windows. Neil was more certain than ever that he could see movement in the distance. He shook his head, now hoping that it was only his overactive imagination. Soft became tense. All of his hairs extended and he started breathing heavily. His breathing pumped him up like a balloon until he was several times larger than before. His hair turned black and the tips started to glow red. It reminded Neil of his grandfather's fiber optic Christmas tree. He and Marie held hands as they reached the edge of the darkness. Maya turned off the interior lights of the transport so their eyes could acclimate to the total darkness. She softly stroked Soft's head. There was complete silence. The only sound was Soft's heavy breathing. The tension in the transport was intense. Neil could see a pinpoint of light coming from below, and it was growing fast. The light was from the Tryon platform. They were less than 20 feet from the safety of the lights. Neil sighed in relief when suddenly their transport was jolted to a halt. Marie screamed. Neil hit the ceiling and then crashed to the floor, landing on top of Sof. He looked up and saw a swirling mass of bodies above their head. Marie looked over and she saw the mass to her side. The transport had been stopped by the Darrow, and they were completely surrounded. 
Starlights! Maya yelled. Suddenly, the inside of the transport exploded in light. There was a loud screeching sound that erupted from outside the transport. Neo was face to face with a Dara warrior hanging onto the side of the transport. Its almost human-like face was covered in reptilian scales and it had large black eyes. Its mouth was open, revealing a long, beaver-like front tooth. The rest of its teeth were long and sharp. He saw that the starlights from the transport were causing this creature's skin to blister, and it jumped back into the darkness. The lights caused the Daro to drop the transport, and it went into freefall. Something crashed through the transport glass, and it killed the lights. Neil looked up to see a long, round spear piercing the back wall. They were again jerked to a stop, causing everyone to fly up in the air. They are now less than 10 feet from the Triana platform. We have to go through the escape hatch, Maya said. I thought you said this thing could withstand an attack, Neil yelled. It can, but only for so long, Maya said nervously. She touched a panel on the wall and a hatch opened on the floor of the transport. Marie, you need to go now, Maya yelled. Marie closed her eyes and jumped through the hatch. She landed on her feet and rolled to her left. The decrease in weight caused the transport to lurch upward. Neil, go, Maya yelled. Neil jumped down, causing the transport to again jerk upward. He landed on the platform awkwardly, breaking his right leg. Neil saw Soft jump out of the escape hatch, nearly landing on him. The Daro overtook the transport, and the escape hatch closed with a clank. The Daro completely surrounded the transport, and they dragged it away into the jungle with Maya inside. Hundreds of flashes pierced the darkness. Neil saw dozens of creatures running up the platform, shooting blue electromagnetic pulses at the retreating Daro horde with their magna rifles. The Dara let off an ear-splitting shriek and they disappeared into the jungle darkness. The Tryon soldiers had arrived. The Tryon were very tall, at least two feet taller than Neil, and they were very thin. Their bodies were covered in reptilian skin and they had large round eyes. Marie crawled on her hands and knees over to Neil. Soft circled them both and he huffed loudly. A creature walked up to Soft and began whistling long, soft notes. Soft's breathing slowed and his body deflated. The creature stopped in front of Neil and Marie. Neil's leg was badly broken, and he was in considerable pain. Tears streaked down Marie's face as she looked at his broken leg. How bad is it? Neil asked her. Not good, dude, she answered. Not good. The creature whistled again, this time louder and higher pitched. A group of Trian soldiers ran up to Neil, carrying a stretcher. They leaned down, picked him up, and carried him away. Neil looked at a tall Trian warrior standing in front of him. The creature wore black armor outlined in small starlights and a dull black helmet. Neil grabbed Marie's hand and passed out. Chapter 7 Neil's eyes flickered open. He had to squint because the sun was directly in his eyes. He felt cold beneath his waist and looked down to find that he was standing waist deep in a cold, crystalline lake. He looked to his left and saw his father shadow casting his fly rod into the lake. His father wore faded green waders and a straw cowboy hat. A clap of thunder echoed across the valley. Is this real? Or is this a dream? Neil asked his father. I'm not sure, but I can smell the scent of pine blowing on the wind, his dad said. Where are you? Neil asked. We were caught in the middle of a war on Silosis. Our guides were killed and Dr. Lowell was badly injured, his father replied. Oh no, Neil said under his breath, as the reality of his mission finally caught up to him. The mission was a real thing. It wasn't a game, and it carried life and death consequences with it. We managed to get through one last wormhole before my wormhole device died. The problem is, I've never visited this planet. We're surviving, but we can't last much longer. The gravity is excruciating and there's no signs of life, his dad said. Dad, we're in trouble too, Neil said. 
We were traveling to the Tryon capital with Maya when our transport was attacked by the Daro, and they took her. This wasn't supposed to happen. I plotted the safest route I could find. I'm so sorry I've put you in this position, his dad said, sighing loudly. A thunderclap roared across the mountains, and several bolts of lightning jumped from cloud to cloud on the building storm. Why didn't you ask Grandpa Al for help? Neil asked. I did, said his father. He was the first person that should have received my distress call, and he has his own wormhole device. Something must have happened for him not to receive my message. What if we can't find you? Neil asked. Then you need to go to Verlam, retrieve their information, and bring it home to release it to the world, said his father. A bowl of lightning and an instantaneous clap of thunder startled Neil awake. In Chapter 6, I established that the Simeon jungle is enormous, and in order to travel between the jungle canopy and to the surface where the Tryon live, enormous elevators were constructed called transports. They are secured to the palm trees and protected by starlight arrays. As I've discussed earlier, the starlights are the only thing that are protecting the Simeon cities and the transports from the canopy down to the ground. It is revealed also that alone sits many miles above the forest floor. It takes hours to go from the top to the bottom. This is the first time where we see that Neil and Marie have been given outfits made of woven silver. Those outfits will play an important part in the stories to come. In the screenplay version of The Race to Space, there was a scene where Neil and Marie play their favorite music to each other. Neil played songs from the Human League, while Maya played drum music, which is a favorite of the Waichu. When the Doro attacked the transport, we get the first sight of them. I gave them sharp teeth because they would be meat eaters, but also giant front teeth like beavers because their home is in the jungle and they would use it to strip bark from the trees. I also didn't want to use any guns of any type in the stories, but sometimes weapons are a necessity. So I made the simians advanced enough to have harnessed the power of electromagnetism and that's what they use for their protection by using magna rifles. In chapter 7, this is the first time where we experience one of Neil's visions. This was originally written to be just a dream, but I changed it because these visions gave Neil hope. Hope that his dad was still alive and that they were on the right path. And is also meant to explain what Stephen and Dr. Lowell were doing and what had happened to them. These visions have evolved over the course of the series and play an extremely important role in the Event Horizon 2, which I have just completed. My wife read one of the early drafts of the story and asked where Neil's grandfather was and why would such a dangerous mission be given to a kid. That got me thinking. And in this chapter, we found out that Neil's father actually tried to contact Grandpa Al, but he didn't receive the message in time. But Neil did. So there you have it. That's chapters 5 through 7. Thank you so much for joining me. Next week, I'll continue with another selection from the Race Through Space and continue the story on how the story evolved into the book that you are hopefully reading today. Please follow me on Twitter. You can find me at DavidHawk303. You can find me on Facebook at DaveTheWriter303, as well as on Instagram. You can find me at DavidHawk303. Thank you guys so much for joining us. All my books are available now on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, as well as the audiobooks are available on Audible. Have a good week. The Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast is a Truckee Pacific production. For comments or sponsorship inquiries, please go to truckeepacificproductions at gmail.com.